Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer jumps us back into the series, A Life That Pleases God. Have you ever known what faith is really like? We continue on our journey through Hebrews 11 with Abraham's example of faith in Pleasant Valley Sunday. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message. Pleasant Valley Sunday. When I went to Bible college at uh, Faith Baptist Bible College in Iowa, my, where I met my wife, we had many different kinds of professors. I had, uh, on the one extreme, I had this professor from Germany. And I don't know if he was abused as a child or if he was just reading too many German fairy tales. You know how German fairy tales are, right? Everybody dies in the end. I mean, spoiler, don't read how The Little Mermaid actually ends in all these little Disney cartoons. Your kid's going to be very frightened. I don't know if it's his upbringing or what, but this German professor who spoke with this thick German accent just love to give the hardest tests. And what made the test hard wasn't so much that the content was so hard, it's that you never knew what you were studying for. He just hoped that you would just grasp information out of the sky. Uh, and at times he would quiz you even on the, the Peanuts cartoons that he would put in your printed notes. You had no idea what this man was going to quiz you on, so you just had to be a scholar on all things. And so consequently, I really struggled with his classes. I did not enjoy them to their fullest because I never knew what to study for the test. And I, got, I came to the place where whether I studied or didn't study, I got the same grade. So guess what I didn't do? <laughs> I didn't study for his tests. Now, I had this, a, a different professor back at Faith, and he would be very careful to tell us uh, basically what's going to be on the test. He would give us this study guide. And, he, and granted, the study guide wasn't the whole test. It was far more than you needed. But because I knew that if I know this study guide, I'm going to do well on this test, guess what I did? I studied hard for the test because I knew the measure by which I would be measured for a good grade. And so that encouraged me to work hard in his classes. Well, in God's Word, in Hebrews chapter 11, what I'm glad is that we don't have a German theologian judging me at the end of my life. We have God, and you know what God did? He gave us a study guide. He gave us something by which we are going to be measured. What is it by which we are going to be measured at the end of our life as believers as to whether or not we lived faithful lives, whether or not we'll be rewarded or receive a loss of reward? Well, God tells us. In fact, in Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so a life of faith is what it takes to please God. God doesn't just want us to, to live according to how we feel, you know, to do that which is right in our own eyes, to lean on our own understanding. If we live a life of faith, we receive the commendation of God. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 1, he defines faith for us. And then in the whole rest of the chapter, he describes faith faith, because he knows you and I. We don't just like concepts. We like examples. We like people. And so he gives us about 40 different examples of lives of faith. And later on, he says that they, in chapter 12, he'll say that they're a cloud of witnesses bearing testimony that it's worth living a life of faith. Often in the Bible, in the New Testament, we're, ca we're called to imitate the faith of those who are faithful. Paul says, imitate me 
as I imitate Christ. And so we need human fleshly examples, not carnal, not evil examples, but we need examples with skin on it. We don't just need broad concepts. And so the Bible gives us these examples in Hebrews chapter 11. Hopefully you, <clears throat> you found your way there by now. This morning's example is not a surprise uh, to anybody. Nobody is shocked because you know where we're going in Hebrews 11. You also know he's a very famous character. We're not teaching on Mephibosheth this morning, okay? We're teaching on Abraham, Father Abraham. You sing about him as a kid in VBS. This is the father of the great nation, the guy that, you know, was going to, God is going to give him the Abrahamic covenant, a promise of land and seed and blessing. And through him, all the nations will be blessed. Through him, the nation of Israel is going to arise. And through that line, we're going to receive the Messiah. This is an important key figure. And there's something about his life that God wants us to look at and to observe so that we would, in a similar fashion, live a life of faith. And we're going to see that he lived in a very radical, obedient faith to God. He, was, he obeyed God. So number one, we're going to see that obedient faith, it's not comfortable. You're going to see that Abraham, he's a lot of things, but he never lived a very comfortable life. And those who live lives of faith don't live comfortable lives. And that might be very disappointing to you. There's probably some of us who are still holding out that we can live a very easy, familiar, predictable, comfortable life and still receive the commendation of God. But that isn't, they don't go hand in hand. We get to choose, though, whether or not I'm going to live for a life of comfort and peace and ease and safety, or I'm going to live and paddle in the white water of the rapids of faith and to live a significant life. And so today, I'm, I'm asking all of us to think and to make a decision. Am I going to make my life about making it comfortable and easy, or am I going to choose to paddle in the white water with Jesus and live in the rapids of faith? Abraham clearly chose to live a life of faith. What makes faith so uncomfortable and difficult, we're gonna see here, A, is that faith obeys God without a majority. You don't get to live by faith and go with the crowds, why? Because wide is the gate that leads to destruction. How's the narrow path that leads to God, the life of faith, look like? It's narrow and difficult, and the Bible says few are the ones that find it. So if you're going to live a life of faith, you've got to get comfortable with a little bit of loneliness. The, the, the familiarity, the family bonds that you're going to have, that's what we get in church. But when you go out in the rest of the world, is it like church there? Where you work, do they talk like the people here at church? Probably not. And so we're going to have to get accustomed to obeying God when no one else is. And that's similar to the faith of Abraham here. In chapter 11 and verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed. He, he followed God. He's going to obey what God has to say. When he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive his inheritance. We know that when Abraham went out, it's not like all of his family went out. Sure, his nephew Lot is going to go with him. We'll see that in a little bit. But Abraham is going to have to do something very uncomfortable. He's going to have to leave what is familiar, something that he grew up with. He's going to have to leave his family to follow the Lord. Now, to understand the significance of what Abraham is being called out of and what he's being called to, we have to understand a little bit about his context. Abraham is uh, from a couple of different places, all within Babylonian culture. Uh, he's from originally Ur of the Chaldees. You can still visit Ur today. It's in southern Iraq. And uh, it's, the, it's only about six miles from where they built the Tower of Babel. You remember the Tower of Babel? 
You, you read to your kids in the golden book of children's Bible stories, right? The Tower of Babel. It's this place where God gives a command for mankind. You need to go and you need to fill the earth and subdue it. But then mankind says, I don't think so. We're not going to fill the earth. We're not going to separate from one another. We're not going to fill it and obey you, God. We're going to stay all in one centralized location. We're going to be this gigantic city. Are gigantic cities usually great places of spiritual piety and devotion to the Lord? I mean, have you been to Chicago? You've been to New York? It's not. It's like, it's like having a classroom of 30 fifth grade boys. You know, you can't kill them, but what can you do? You can separate them. You can slow down the progression of evil. And that's what God does at the Tower of Babel. He strikes it. He strikes Babel, Bob-El, meaning the, the gate of God. Not only are we not going to fill the earth, Lord, we're going to rebel against you, and we're going we're to approach you our way. We're going to build the Bob-El, the gate of God. And so God scatters them across the earth. And while other men were disobedient to God, Abraham, God is going to call him out by his grace and, and lead him to a life of faith. So he grew up in Chaldean, Babel, Babylonian culture. Is Babylon known for uh, its great spiritual moral examples? No, they got, they, they've got a whole pantheon of deities, Marduk, and they literally have a god. One of the chief deities uh, in Haran, where he's about to move, is a, a, a deity that's literally called Sin, also known as Nana, with apologies to grandmas everywhere, okay? They have a god named Sin who's called Nana. I mean, so this is, we have these Babylonian gods. Babylon is a byword in the Bible for that which opposes God. In Revelation, you're going to read about the great fall of Babylon. And so Abraham is called out of arguably one of the most wicked places on earth to follow God in obedience. And it's not Marduk speaking to him. It's not Nana, speaking to Abraham, it's this God that he's never really known, this Yahweh. He's calling him out to a land that he's never heard of. We see that in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to a land that I will show you. Let's pause. How hard is it to leave your family and move somewhere that you don't know? Now, for all of you here, most of, a lot of our kids, they tend to stick around the area. They tend to like family. So you understand family values more than a lot of parts of the world. But can I argue that here, family was even more important? Most of you don't depend on your family to protect you. Thank God, right? <laughs> but back then, they did. Your family, it was very clannish. Your family was your protection. It was your social status within the community. It was your power. It was your ability to do business. To leave your family is to leave everything. It's to leave your protection. It's to leave your social standing. And it's to go to a, 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 a place, from a place of security within a city where your family is, who look out for you and take care of you, to move all the way to somewhere where your family is not, where there's new religions, new cultures, new political environments. That's what Abraham was doing. It's not like your kid moving to Toledo. This is more like your kid moving to Afghanistan to live in a tent in the middle of the desert. And so this is an enormous step of faith, and it's not something that everybody was doing with him. Abraham did not poll the audience as to whether or not he should obey or follow God. He simply did it. We see that his faith was uncomfortable because B, faith obeys without knowing the outcome. End of verse 8 reads this way. It says, and he went out not knowing where he was going. God didn't give him a GPS coordinate. God didn't give him a roadmap. God didn't lay it out for him, didn't have some spatial palace 
for him to, grow, to move into. He just says, go to this land that you don't know. Leave what is familiar, leave what is comfortable, leave what's secure for you, and I want you to change everything about your life simply because I told you to, because I have a mission for you to accomplish, to be a blessing to the rest of the earth, and you can't do it where you used to be. Is there some analogies in there for our own life, even as a church? That sometimes God calls us to leave a place of comfort and familiarity so that we can go to a land because where we are right now is not a place that God can bless and he wants us to go and to do something unfamiliar, something unusual, possibly even allow changes into my personal life or even a life as a church. Because why? Because God has a purpose for our life, not just to be comfortable, not just to live with our family and enjoy time together and have brisket after church. He wants us to accomplish his mission. That's what a church is. Remember, a, mission, a church, it's not a building. It's not a schedule of services. What is a church? It's a people. It's an ecclesia. We're called out ones. We are apostellos sent out into the world to accomplish the will and the purpose and mission of God. When churches get confused, then we start holding on to the form of the church when we don't understand its function. When you don't understand the function of a church, you don't know why we're here or what we're to accomplish, then we just hold to the form, and then change becomes very terrifying and frightening, doesn't it? Well, God called Abraham to live by faith, not just because he loved the idea of change. It's not because Abram just had this great idea. I heard there's some good land out there. It's because God promised me land, seed, and blessing, and I'm not going to get it where I'm over here. I've got to go out. I've got to be willing to allow God to change my life so I can align myself with the purposes of God. And that's walking by faith. Are it, by the way, is walking by faith an option for us as Christians? Or is God tell us, you know, walk by faith if you want to, if it feels good to you? Faith never feels good. Let me just tell you that right now. It never feels good to exercise faith because it's very uncomfortable. We like that which we can control. We like places where we know I'm in control. The outcome is going to be very predictable because we do the same thing all the time. That's what human flesh craves. We love predictability. We love it when we're in control because then I don't have to trust God. But does God bless that life? The life that says, I'm gonna trust in myself. He does not. It's what the Bible calls walking by sight, not by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we know that while we're at home in the body, it means you're still alive, you're in a body right now. I think that's most of us today. Anybody pass out from the sermon yet? While we're at home in the body, he says we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by, not by sight. What does it mean to walk by sight? It means we're walking according to our senses, what seems right to me, what feels good to me. It means I trust what I can see, I trust what I can hear, touch, taste, smell, you know, my senses. I'm in control, and I determine whether or not something's good for me. I determine whether or not something is true for me. That's walking by sight. It means we take what God says, and we filter it through a couple of lenses, maybe a personal lens, where if God's word doesn't make sense to me, I dump it. I don't understand how God can make the earth in seven days, so guess what I do? I flush that teaching. I don't, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me, so I dump it. I don't understand how Noah could get all these animals on the ark and save everybody. So I, don't, I don't get it, so I'm going to find a way to scientifically explain it away. I don't understand how Jesus can save me apart from work, so I'm just going to dump that part and do it my way. Okay, And so we become a judge of the Word of God rather than obeying it. Sometimes we look at the Bible through a cultural lens. Before we obey the Scripture, we poll the audience. Hey, what do you think about obeying God in this area? Does that make sense to you? 
I mean, go ahead, try it out on Facebook today and go out there and say, hey, I'm trying to investigate homosexuality and whether or not it's, it's good or not. The Bible says this, and what do you think? Are you gonna be well-informed as to what God thinks about that? No, you're gonna, you're gonna get a very secularized point of view. And so if you choose to build your morality on what the world says, you're going to be in opposition with God because the Bible says very clearly that the world is at enmity with God. We're not gonna find the truth by polling the audience and getting public opinion. We find the truth from just reading the word of God, believing it, and obeying it. And that's what Abraham did. He didn't ask his family if this is a good idea. Hey, honey, I know you're in the city. I know you love being close to your mom and having, you know, going home for Thanksgiving every year, but I've got a better idea. We're going to leave this here secure town, my secure job, where I have a nice pension laying up for me, and we're going to leave and get this, we're going to live in a tent the rest of our life. Why is that, Abraham? That's kind of a, it sounds like a bad deal. Well, you see, God talked to me. You mean Marduk? No, a God you've never heard of, a guy named Yahweh. And he told me I need to go and I need to just do this. I don't know that he probably had a tremendous amount of support at home for this decision, but he followed God anyway. He didn't judge the word of God, he simply obeyed it. He trusted God. And that's what the Bible tells us to do too. Hebrews 10.38 says, my righteous one, those who are justified, declared righteous, those who are born again. He says, the righteous one shall live by faith. It means, by, living by faith means that our decision to live by faith wasn't just a one-time decision that I made when I was a little kid. That I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer. I was at a camp, I threw a stick in the fire. I did this, I did that. One time, I put my faith in Jesus and now I just live life my way. That's not a life of faith. That's not living by faith. That's making a sham decision for Jesus that didn't convert you. Because if it converted you, that was just the first step of faith in a series of faith steps every day to trust God, to read his word, to obey what you see until the day that you die. And all of these life decisions that were made by faith prepares us for that ultimate, final, biggest step of faith, and that is when we flatline on that heart monitor, we're just trusting Jesus that when our, we close our eyes and we disappear into black, we're trusting that Jesus is going to catch us on the other side. How can you face that decision without fear? It's by not allowing that to be your first decision of faith. People that are terrified to die, friends, it's probably because you're not living by faith every day. You're not learning that God can be trusted because faith is uncomfortable. I don't like being pushed to trust God entirely with something. He says, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he, this is the opposite of faith, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. To shrink back, we studied this before. You remember Jesus' apostles? means sent out ones. Apostello means apo, away. It means Jesus gave you a mission to do and you obediently trusted him enough to go away from him to go out into all the world and make disciples. They didn't just stay close to Jesus. Would have been comfortable, right? Just stay here where there's a bunch of people that believe like we do. But instead, Jesus says, trust me and leave this group, this group, this group of faith here and go out into a world that doesn't agree with you and doesn't like you. By faith, they went out, apostello. This is the word hupostello. It's the opposite of going forward. It means I take an evaluation of where I'm at and I get scared and I duck back in. It's what turtles do. It's what snails do. It's what prairie dogs do. They see danger and they get scared and they duck back in their hole to protect themselves. That's the opposite of faith. It's when we choose to disobey God because we're afraid of what might happen to me. People may not like me. I might lose my job. Somebody might hurt me slander me, and I can't take that. So I'm gonna back off of what God says. I'm gonna back away from living a life of faith. 
God says, that's hupostello. You shrink back. And what does God say about that? My soul has no pleasure in him. This whole series is about living a life that pleases God. Isn't that what you want? I'll give you a hint. That's what every true believer wants. If you're sitting here today and the only reason you're here is because somebody brought you here and you really don't care to be here or you went to church one time, you prayed a prayer, but you really have no heart for God, you have no longing to please him, can I just encourage you to evaluate the credibility of your faith? Because every true believer that walks by faith that's willing to go out and obey God when no one else is, is apostello. They're not hupostello. They're not scared. They're not protecting themselves from the consequences We obey God without knowing the outcome. We obey God and we just trust him with whatever comes. I give money to the Lord, I trust him, he's gonna pay my bills. I go out and share the gospel, I trust he's gonna bring people to him. I, you know, we just trust God. We don't have to know what the outcome is and that's what the faith that Abraham had. He went out, the Bible says, not knowing where he was going. He couldn't control that outcome. The brother had no idea where he was headed. And that's what faith is. It's trusting God. And not because you know the end goal will be good for you, it's because you're trusting God because you know that God is good. Not that the end will be good, but that God is good. And that's enough for you. Just knowing that God is good, even though he may bring me through difficult times, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because why? Thou art with me. Clearly, I learned that one in the King James. Okay, so, uh, but that's why. We, it's not that we trust the outcome. It's not that we've evaluated that my obedience to God is going to lead me to uh, my best life now. It's that I'm obeying God because I trust him. That's when you're living a life of faith. You're not evaluating God's word. You're not judging God's word. You're just following it. And that's what Abraham did. It's a lot like flying a plane. Anybody, we got any pilots in here? I don't know. In the church, anybody take flying? Okay, nobody's flying me anywhere anytime soon. So if you've, I've never been a pilot either, but I will tell you this. I have logged over 30 hours of flight, <clears throat> flight time in a little single-engine Cessna. And I did that uh, when we were in Alaska for a summer. And we were in this little four-seater Cessna all summer long in Alaska. And don't, don't think National Geographic, the pretty parts in Anchorage and the Kenai Peninsula, the stuff that you see on TV, the stuff you go to Alaska cruises for. This was the interior of Alaska. It was shrubby. It was flat. There were no mountains. It was swampy. It was, I'll be honest with you, not being mean, but it was gross. Um, but this is where all the villagers lived. The Native Americans, we call them Eskimos, but their the proper term was the Aleut. And so their little villages, you couldn't get there by boat or by roads. You had to get there by boat or by plane. So everybody flew. And so we're sitting there watching the evening news with the missionary that we were staying with at the time. And I thought it was so odd. At the end of every, every evening news, there was a flight report and there was a map and it showed these regions labeled VFR and IFR. I said, what is that? He says, well, VFR is where any pilot can go. It's called visual flight rules. And so you're flying by what you can see. There's a mountain straight ahead. Maybe I better move around it. Okay, so that's visual flight rules. I, there's, there's something here. I'm heading straight to the ground. Probably better pull up. That's what regular pilots can do. You look out the window and using your own senses, you can figure out where to go. But then there are these regions called IFR, instrument flight rules. It's areas where it's going to be foggy that day. Maybe there's gonna be some things rolling in, some clouds, whatever. And you can't see where you're going. And I'm going to tell you, it really is very disorienting in a plane. You go flying through a cloud, you can swear that you're flying straight. It feels so right. But you look at the instrument panel, and what's it telling you? You're going straight in the dirt, pal. (laughs) 
Where'd you get your pilot's license? That's what your instrument's telling you. But it feels so right. And if you're not careful and don't have the special training for IFR and you fly in an IFR region, you're gonna fly right into that mountain because you're, you're used to trusting in yourself and what you can see. But special training requires that we look at what the instrument says. And even though in my heart it feels right, I'm gonna change anyhow. That's what living by faith is. That sometimes we make decisions in life that feel right. It feels right to do this. It feels good to me. But it's what the Bible calls leaning on our own understanding. It's called walking by sight. It's visual flight rules. But what does God call us to do? Instrument flight rules. You may feel like your decision is right. You may feel that that moral decision is good, but what's our instrument say? It says, buddy, you're flying straight into the dirt. You may feel like you're on the right path. You're, you're doomed. And we, by faith, repent and we change and we adjust the course of our life to follow what the instrument says. That's when you're walking by faith. You're not going by how you feel. You're going by what's true. And that's what Abraham did. Number two, we see that obedient faith does not attach itself to this world. Verse nine, he says, by faith, he, Abraham, went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with, Abraham, or with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Promise is a word used twice in this passage here, showing us the importance of it, the promise. He's not living for the moment. He's not living for the blessings God's going to immediately give him today. So friends, if you're watching TV and you're watching some prosperity teacher telling you to send in seed money or to buy this prayer hanky, friend, it's, that's not how we live. We're not just using God to improve our earthly life now. We're living for a promise. We're living for a future date, just like Abraham did. Moreover, if you're a Bible underlying kind of person, you want to understand these verses well, I would underline the phrase, as in a foreign land, living in tents, and the word city. This is, these are very important distinctions for understanding these verses here. Abraham went to the land of promise. It's the land that God says, I'm going to give to you and your family as an inheritance forever. And yet, when Abraham moved to that land, how did he regard the land he was living in that God promised him? He lived in it as if he was where? A foreign land. You ever lived in a foreign land? Some of you may have visited a foreign land. We lived in a foreign land for a while. We were with the International Mission Board for 13 years. Or 13? 11? 13? 13. Um, it's a little warm up here. Uh, so we were there for a long time, but we lived in mostly in China, a little bit in Malaysia, and I'm here to tell you, when we went to these places, uh, we settled to the degree that we could, knowing all the while that we can only settle so far. So we'd buy groceries, we'd buy furniture. I mean, it's really groovy to have a bed to lay down in at night. We didn't sleep on the floor. So we, we bought these things. We might even paint a wall or put up a decoration. We didn't knock out walls. I didn't buy a dream home. <clears throat> I didn't put a jacuzzi in the backyard. We didn't have a backyard. So we didn't settle in fully. Why? Because that wasn't our home. Why then were we living there for 13 years? Because we had, like Abraham, we had a mission of God. We were sent over there to be a blessing to other people and to take his word and his gospel to people who don't know him. That's why we didn't allow ourselves to fully settle there. It didn't mean we didn't enjoy things. We went to parks in China. We, we enjoyed the restaurants in China. We enjoyed the culture of China but we never allowed our hearts to fully settle there like that's our permanent and eternal home. He lived there as though he was in a foreign land, and that's what God is calling us to do. This America right here, Ashland, Kentucky, can I disappoint some of you? You may have been here your whole life. Is Ashland, Kentucky your home? 
Careful now. Is this your home? It's not. This is not our hopes and dreams. All God wants and desires for your life is not this city. It's not to just go to every Tomcat ball game. And God bless you. Go to them. Love them. It's fun. It's enjoyable. Enjoy the things that God gives you. But this is not your home. And so we don't settle here and live here as though this is our final destination. We're looking for a a different kind of city that we'll talk about later. The Bible makes much of the fact that Abram chose to live in a tent versus a city. That's key. Tent and city. These are very important distinctions as we're comparing tent living and city living. Tent living, when do you live in a tent? Any of you currently live in a tent at home right now? You go home, you're going home to a tent. Nobody, okay. Uh, There's a reason for that, because you plan on being there for a while. When you live in a tent, what are you planning on doing? You're only going to be there for a little bit. You go out and you go camping and you take the Coleman tent or some of you fancy campers, you're glamping and you got the big old RV. Either way you look at it though, it's not as good as your established house, the one that has foundations. Those of you who've been camping, you put out the tent and you bring only what you need for the moment, don't you? Yeah, sure, you have food. You might even bring some yard games with you. You, Some of you have inflatable mattresses now wimps. Um, Some of you may have a cot or something, but you bring just a few things that you need. You bring a folding chair. Ain't none of you going out there and bringing your lazy boy recliner with a 60-inch TV out there. You're not doing that because you're camping. You're there for a short time for a purpose. You can enjoy it, but you're not living there. That is how God calls us to live. You're not building a log cabin for a two-week camp trip. You're bringing a tent. And there's some of us who are trying to do log cabin living with this earthly life when God wants us, like Abraham, to live in a tent. We're putting too much effort to make this life comfortable, to pad our life so that it pleases us. And we are, if we make this much money, we expect our lifestyle to be at that level. Or worse yet, we get credit cards. (laughs) And then our debt exceeds our income. And then we enter what we call the covetousness trap months back. What does God want us to do? Like Abraham He wants us to live in a tent below our means. Understand this. Abraham did not live in a tent because he loved tent camping. He wasn't just some grizzly Adams, Boy Scout, Eagle Scout type that just loved to be in the outdoors. Abraham lived in a tent by choice so that he could honor God by by serving him and not getting too enveloped by the world's values and living for comfort. Abraham was actually described as being very wealthy, wasn't he? If you look at Genesis 13 and verse 2, it says, now Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. And that's how you measured wealth. How many animals you got? You know, that was your wealth. Uh, what's your gold and silver like? You know, and so that, that's how you measure it. And the Bible doesn't say Abram was well-to-do. It doesn't say he was rich, but very rich. In fact, so rich, we're going to see in Genesis 14, he has his own private army that he can use to bail his nephew Lot out when he gets captured by a confederacy of kings. And so this is an extremely rich man. Abram's choice to live under his means was for a purpose, so that he didn't get distracted by life on this world, so he could fulfill the purpose and the mission of God for him. And the fact that we see the use of the word tent and city within this passage, I believe, implies that we need to make a comparison. Why does it keep talking about a city? We see Abram went to live in a tent, He didn't allow himself to attach to the land, but he brought along with him someone else we read about earlier, his nephew. Who was it? Lot. Now, Lot, he started out with good intentions. He followed Abram out of the land, but Abram went there to worship God. Lot 
had some business prospects in his mind. We know that because we look at his life. Lot went there, and rather than living in a, a tent the whole time, he's looking for a city. Like Joel Osteen, he wants to live his best life now. He wants to have it all. He wants to have everything. He wants to invest in this world system. And so we see sort of a, a digression in Lot's life as he's where he's moving to. Genesis 13, 12 says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and while Lot settled amongst the cities of the valley, he wanted to be near Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. He wanted to be near the shopping mall. He wanted to be close. He didn't want to live out in the tent. He didn't want to be eating granola bars. And so he moved amongst the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, that's an intentional choice on Lot's part. Lot knew what he was getting into. Sodom had a lot to offer you. It had, it had the great, best schools for your kids. It had comfortable places. It had the spa where mama could get her manicure done. And so this is where you wanted to live. It had all the amenities that big cities tend to offer. What else do we know about Sodom, though? Well, in the English, we get the word sodomy from it. So that's not a really good thing. But Sodom wasn't the best place to live. In fact, the Bible describes it this way. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. These aren't your average run-of-the-mill sinful people. These guys are like the days of Noah sinners. These are wicked, wicked, wicked people. And don't think that that thought was lost on Lot, like Lot just showed up and said, wow, honey, we should have thought through this one better. He knew what he was getting into. You see, because we see a progression of what he does. He lives well, I'll just show you. Genesis 13, 12, it says he pitched his tent near Sodom. So he's still in a tent, but where does he want to live? He wants to live near Sodom in the well-watered plains, the Bible says. Genesis 13 says he, he loved the well-watered plains. He wanted where it's fruitful and comfortable. He wanted the easy life. And so he lived near the city so that he could enjoy its amenities. Still in the tent, though, just like Abraham. I'm godly like him. Sadly, we see in Genesis 14, 12, Lot traded his tent in for a three-bedroom, two-bath in the suburbs of Sodom. It says that now Sodom is found in the city. Done with tent life. Why, honey, do we need to commute to go to get your manicure every day? You know, 20 minutes, we could just be living right there in the city. And so he moves in. By Genesis 19, it says Lot is seen sitting at the gate of Sodom. Now, why would Lot be sitting at the gate of Sodom? There's a reason. At the gate of the city, you see, you had your city, you had your city dwellers and your craftsmen, your artisans, but outside of there, you had most everybody else, and they were your farmers, but they would come into the nearby market town to sell their goods, and that's where you would handle disputes, trade, this kind of thing, and you'd sell your products and things, and because of that, the city officials would sit in the gate of the city, and they would handle any kind of problems you may have. They would, you know, be an arbiter between two people, a mediator. And so for Lot in Genesis 19 to be sitting at the gate of the city indicates he's not just near Sodom. He didn't just buy a property in Sodom. He joined the system of Sodom. He's on the city council. And so that's the progression of sin we see in Lot's life. That's, that's what compromise looks like as Christians. Christians, we don't just dump, jump right into being like the world, do we? We take baby steps to hell. We start in by just looking at the world. Afar off, I still go to church. We start looking at the world, wishing we had what the world had. Friends, can I just tell you, don't envy people that are going to hell. Do not envy what people that are going to hell has. But we, Christians, sometimes we look at it and we go, man, I sure would like to have Sundays off and go out to the lake. I sure wish I could live this way. I wish I could cheat on my taxes like my buddy. I wish I could fudge on my, you know, report for the day when they're calculating my hours at the job. I wish I could be like that. And we longingly look at what the world has. 
And then we just expose ourselves to the world through our media over and over and over again. We start thinking like the world. Then we start acting like the world, like we can understand where they're coming from. And pretty soon, we have fully joined the world in where theoretically you have churches now who join gay pride parades or baptize openly homosexual members. We just took baby steps to hell. We're just, we're just like everybody else now. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 has a warning for us. He says, do not love the world. Okay, when he says the world, he's not saying the planet. He's not saying don't join Greenpeace, though I don't recommend it. He says, do not love the world, this earth system, its values, its priorities. Do not love it or the things in the world. Don't be going after stuff, gathering stuff like a hamster, stuffing stuff into its pouches for later. Don't be like, that's what everybody else does. Jesus said in Matthew 6, he says, your heavenly father knows you have need of these things. Don't ask, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? He says, that's what the Gentiles do. Lost people, they're only concerned about gathering stuff like a little hamster. He says, don't you be that guy. He says, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. That when we love the world, we want to be like the world. We enjoy the world. We want to get close to the world. He says, it speaks against our conversion. True children of God don't love the world. We can enjoy certain things in it. Feel free to go out today, get yourself some barbecue, some pulled pork, some Dr. Pepper, go home, take a nap watching golf or whatever you do. It's okay to enjoy those things, but don't live for it. Enjoy the things of the world, don't live for the things of the world. And certainly don't find enjoyment in the things that God calls abominations. Well, faith causes us not to invest too heavily in this earthly life. And when we do, it just seems incongruent with the life that God has called us to, a life of faith, a life of purpose and meaning and significance. It's something I think, honestly, as you look back through music, music is often a, sort of a, a re, it represents where the culture is at the time. And if you look back at the 60s, you can tell that there was a big shift going on in American culture during that time. Is that fair to say? It, because prior to that, prior to World War II, you, the home was kind of the center of all things. And mom and dad and the kids, they spent a lot of time together. Problem is, mom and dad grew up in the Great Depression. And they knew how difficult poverty can be, and they didn't want that for their kids. And so as soon as World War II ended, and you had this giant financial gain, every, Rosie the Riveter wanted to stay at work. And again, nothing, not against women working. You want to work, it's between you and God and whatever. But we don't lose sight of the family. But this is what happened in our country. And so everybody's working, everybody's trying to gain stuff and gather stuff, and then that led to the 50s with the greasers and people starting to rebel. You get movies like Rebel Without a Cause, and by the 60s, it was a full-blown revolution, wasn't it? And you had people rebelling against mom and dad, that they're making all this money, but they don't care about people, and, you know, and it was all about peace and no war, and they, and they just go out there to you know, Woodstock and play music on their guitar in the mud. And it's just, it's what you do. And it's just, they were trying to find meaning and purpose. And one of the great preachers of that time, Davy, Mickey, Michael, and Peter, also known as the monkeys, came out with some insightful words as to kind of how they felt about this. Just pursuing a comfortable life, and that's it. That the comfortable life is an end in itself. And they were discouraged by that. And they sang a song called Pleasant Valley Sunday. And the words go, the local rock group down the street is trying hard to learn their song. The serenade, they serenade the weekend squire who just came out to Moses Long. He sees everybody is just trying to operate his own little kingdom over here. All that matters is me and my little, my little kingdom taking care of it. He says, see Mrs. Gray, she's proud today. Why? 
because her roses are in bloom. And Mr. Green, he's so serene, he's got a TV in every room. Another Pleasant Valley Sunday, charcoal burning everywhere, rows of houses that are all the same and no one seems to care. Now, at first, when you hear this song, you think it's just kind of a fun, cutesy little, it's got a fun little tune, you know, kind of drives, and, and you think it's just kind of praising the glories of suburban life, but in, in actuality, it's not glorifying the American dream as an end in itself. It sees the emptiness of it. You don't even care. You just got all this stuff. You're just happy with just the fact that you got a charcoal grill and flowers and TVs. In fact, they actually, Monkeys actually changed the lyrics. The original lyrics by Carole King uh, says, I don't want to spend another Sunday in Pleasant Valley. Because it's not an end in itself. Pursuing just a comfortable life with a beautifully manicured yard and beautiful roses, nothing wrong with that. If you have a beautiful house and you have the garden of the month, praise God. But that isn't an end in itself. That's not the purpose of your life is to be comfortable and have all these things. It's just another Sunday in Pleasant Valley. And the problem with having all these things is the tendency is comfort tends to lead to complacency where I just stop caring about people I stop caring about what's important in life. I stop caring about the mission of God. My purpose in life now just becomes living an easy, comfortable life that is predictable and familiar, and I know how it ends. God didn't call us to live in Pleasant Valley. He didn't let Abraham live and stay in Pleasant Valley, did he? He called Abraham from that place of comfort, from that place of complacency, and said, I want you to go to a land that you've never heard of. You don't know where it is, but I want you to go by faith so that you can fulfill the mission that I've given you to do, and that's to be a blessing to all the world. Well, Abram lived in the same area as Lot did, was wealthy like Lot was, but Abram approached this move very differently than Lot did. He didn't go near Sodom. He stayed and lived a nomadic life in a tent, and the first thing he did when he got there was to build an altar to God. It says in Genesis 13, 18, so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now this is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem where the temple is going to be built. This is a holy place. And the first thing Abram does is build an altar to God. The purpose of my life is not to get as close to Sodom as possible. The purpose of my life is to worship God to give my life back to him by faith, to live for a city that's yet to come. Not this city, not Sodom, but for a city that's yet to come. C.S. Lewis once said, the settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. In other words, these pleasures you enjoy, enjoy them now. They're not eternal. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world. Our Father, he says, refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, I-N-N-S, inns. It's the Holiday Inn. It's where you go for vacation. Enjoy it. But nobody's planning on living at the Holiday Inn for the rest of their life. God refreshes us in this journey with some pleasant inns. Enjoy some of the things that God gives you, but he says, will not encourage us to mistake them for home. So enjoy life's pleasures. Just don't let it be the thing that drives your life. Like Abraham, be willing to allow God to change things about your life to make you more effective for the purpose that he has called you to. Number three, obedient faith lives for a future kingdom. God gives us the why Abram did what he did in verse 10. It says, for he, Abram, was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. First of all, it says that Abram looked forward. 
He wasn't just looking at today. By the way, Satan only wants you to look at today. Look at right now. Look at how this will make you feel right now. Look at the enjoyment you'll have right now. Look at the comfort that you'll have in two or three years. He wants you to look only at this earthly life. Go to school, make as much money as possible so you can buy the biggest house you can afford, buy the nicest cars you can afford so that you can live redlining (laughs) the RPMs of your life trying to maintain this high standard of living and we all buy into the lie that right now is where our best happiness is going to be achieved. What did Abraham do? He looked beyond that and said, I don't need that to be happy. I'm gonna look beyond this life. I'm gonna take the long look. I'm gonna look forward to what's really important because all this stuff here is gonna pass away. And so he took a long look and it says, in the Bible uses the word for. For he, Abraham. For means uh, because of. Why did Abraham choose to live the life he did? Why did he live as a foreigner in the country God promised him? Why did Abraham live in a tent when he could have lived in Sodom? For, because he was looking forward. He wasn't looking at the moment. He was looking at what matters, what's gonna last. And that's what's indicated by this term, looking for a city with a foundation. A foundation is something that's strong, it's stable, it's not going to move. If you just build a house in the dirt or in the sand, over time it's gonna shift, it's gonna creak, and your house is gonna snap and break and it's gonna fall on your head. But if you build a foundation that won't move, your house is gonna stay firm, it's gonna stay strong, it's gonna last, it's gonna be permanent. And so Abram was looking for a city that had foundations, something that's gonna be solid, you can build a life on. And I think this is just so funny. Abraham, right now, when he, when he felt that he was looking for a city that had foundations, where was he living at the time? In a tent. And yet the Bible contrasts that with a life of Lot who's living in a city, in an actual house that has an actual foundation, and yet Abraham sees his life as being more stable than the life of Lot because he's looking for the city who has a true foundation. Lot himself is living on shaky ground, isn't he? In fact, what's the weather forecast for Sodom? It's gonna rain, isn't it? It's gonna rain fire. It's gonna rain fire a whole lot. It's going to destroy that city. And Lot became aware of this eventually, didn't he? Genesis 19, 14 says, so Lot went out to see his sons-in-laws who were, to, uh, who were to marry his daughters. And he said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy this city. And what does your Bible say? But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now, why would they think that Lot is joking about the destruction of God? It's probably because this is one of the first times I've heard Lot talk about God. Lot doesn't have a testimony amongst these people. He has fully joined the world system, and now he's gonna try to share the gospel? Friends, you can't live like the world and share the gospel with any effectiveness. The world's gonna think you're a joke. And so we have to be able to be willing to live like Jesus and live lives of faith, and then as we share the gospel, that message has credibility. Lot lost all credibility with these kids. It's like reading, you know, Jesus is going to return from the National Enquirer. They still publish that. When I was a little kid, you used to go to a grocery store, you're waiting on mom to check out groceries for nine children. That was my house. And so you're sitting there in line the whole time and you're looking, there used to be these publications and one of them was the National Enquirer, you know, and it'd have things like, boy, born with three heads. I was kidnapped by aliens, you know, the story inside. And it was just this ridiculous rag where you couldn't believe anything that it said. And for some of us, that's our life and testimony. We're proclaiming Jesus is coming back, but it's coming from a national inquirer life. I'm just like the world, we've lost all credibility with him. We have an inability for people to believe our message. And so that affected his relationship with those who would be his sons-in-laws. But we see his lack of spiritual leadership in the home didn't just affect his kids, who else did it affect? Lot's wife, didn't it? 
While fleeing the city, God told him, don't even look back. There's nothing for you back there. But in Genesis 19, 26, it says, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. When I was a kid, I used to think that God was mean because he made her a pillar of salt just for kind of looking over her shoulder. Oh, hey, you know, as if she was just kind of looking back. Oh, hey, honey, did we turn the iron off before we left home? You know, and she looks back and then God punishes her for the rest of her life. That's not what's being communicated here. In fact, this word looking back, in the English, it could just be like, oh, hey, what's back there? Okay, yeah, let's keep going. Are my kids there? Oh, pillar of salt. That's English. But in the, but in the Hebrew here, when she's looking back, it's a word that means to look back, to gaze intently, to ponder, and to reconsider. It's the very same Hebrew word used of Abraham when God says, hey, bub, look up in the sky. Look at the stars of the sky and just ponder for a moment. I'm going to make your descendants greater than the stars in the sky. I just want you to look out there and wonder in amazement at what I'm about to do and reconsider your life. That's the term that's used for Lot's wife. She is so clinging. She loves the world. She loves the things in the world. And when God tries to take her away from some of that, she looks back longingly going, oh, do I have to follow God? I I can't stand the idea of leaving Sodom behind. And God turned her into a pillar of salt. He judged her. Now, I've often been asked, why did God turn her into a pillar of salt? Why did, why did she turn into this like salt statue? Is there any significance to that? Well, there's, theologians have different ideas. My, my personal belief is, as we look at this, uh, her being a pillar of salt and what God did to Sodom, I think is explained a little bit as we read passages like Mark 9, 49. People who are in hell under the judgment of God are, being des- are described as, and I quote, salted with fire. Salt and fire would go together in the Jewish sacrificial system. In their sacrificial system, whenever you would offer these, these meat offerings and things to the Lord, you would off, always offer salt with it. And the Bible sees that those who are dying in hell under the judgment of God as living out their own human sacrifice. If you're not going to trust in what Jesus did for you in his eternal sacrifice, there still has to be a sacrifice for your sins, but now it's going to be you. And because you're not an infinite being, that sacrifice is going to be an infinite time. And we are salted with fire. Salt and fire is a picture, it's a symbol of God's judgment against sin. And so for her to be turned to salt and then to be destroyed by fire is a picture of God's divine judgment against her and her love of the world. In fact, Jesus later on is just going to give a three-word warning in Luke 17, 32. He just says, remember Lot's wife. And that was supposed to be an example of what he was about to teach, which says, uh, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. Whoever keeps his life, I just want to make my life comfortable right now and here. God says, that's not what believers think. He says, you're going to lose your life. You're going to live for the world. You're going to gain the whole world, and you're going to lose your soul. And God uses Lot's wife as an example of that. And so we don't want to live that life, just trying to preserve our life and live comfortably. We want to live for the life that is to come. Like Hebrews 11.10 says, we are looking for a city whose foundations are of God, whose designer and builder is God, that we're looking for an eternal city, a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that Jesus is even now preparing for us that will descend out of heaven onto earth, on the new earth that God is creating for us. I'm not living for today. This is all going to disappear First Peter says it's gonna, the earth is going to dissolve with fervent heat. Any investments you make into this world is Confederate money. The last years of the Civil War, do you really think people were buying into Confederate money? No, because in just a few moments, it's going to be worthless. That's the investment into this life. 
Enjoy what you can, but don't invest too much because eventually you're gonna lose everything. Invest in what is to come. In the meantime, our life on earth still has significance and purpose, but this earth and this planet that we live on is just a vehicle to get us to our eternal dwelling. Told you we uh, were in Orlando, Florida for 11 years. During that time, worked at Disney and things. And uh, if you've ever been to Epcot Center, what's the most obvious thing that hits you as you walk in the door? Hint, it's on the screen, in case some of you are wondering. This giant silver geodesic dome, and this you go inside, and it's this ride that you go on to. I thought it was going to be like a roller coaster or something the first time I went on. It's the slowest ride in the park. Uh, but it's called Spaceship Earth. And you get in there, and it's just it's this cool, quiet place, you know, in hot Florida, and you can just hop on and listen to Judy Dench narrate a story to you. And the ride begins this way. He says, like a grand and miraculous spaceship, our planet has sailed through the universe of time. And for a brief moment, we have been among its passengers. But where are we going? And what kind of future will we discover there? And then she says, surprisingly, the answers lie in our past. Well, that's one thing Disney actually gets, right? This earth is not a destination. It's a spaceship. It's here to get you. It's traveling through space. It's traveling through time. But this isn't our final destination. Our hopes and dreams aren't in your home. It's not in the pool that you build. It's not in your kids getting great jobs. That's not our, that's not our hope. Our hope is a city that's coming. And this earth is simply a, a transport. Our time on earth is just a transport to get there. Well, how do we get to this new kingdom? As Miss Dench would say, surprisingly, the answers lie in our past. We have to look back to what Jesus did for us years ago. God, who came down to earth to be man, lived the perfect life that we could not. So when he died on this cross, it was for our sins and not his own. He died a death that we dare not die. He rose again, proving that he has the power over life and death. And by looking to him by faith, it will begin a journey of faith that will transport us through time to the heavenly kingdom. But it has to begin with this journey of faith with Jesus. And day by day, we continue to trust him. Not just that one moment. Every day is a, is a conscious decision to follow God's word, to trust him by faith. Have you done that? This isn't your destination. This is just spaceship earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning as we come before you, as we're studying Hebrews 11, what it looks like to live by faith. We are compelled to look at the lives of Abram and Lot who chose to live a very uncomfortable faith, to leave what is familiar, what is peaceful, what is comfortable, what is predictable, and to go out into a land that they've never seen, they don't understand, they don't know where they're going, and it's a scary, terrifying place, unless we know the God who holds our future. Lord, help us in looking at this example that you've given to us of faith to choose to live obediently, not because the world agrees with us, not because it makes sense even to my own human reason, but simply because we trust you. We trust that you're good. We trust that you're holy. We trust that you're omnipotent. We trust that you're coming again, God. And we're living for that day. And we will live obediently to everything your word says, even if we don't understand it fully, even if the world is confused about it or opposes it, God. Help us to walk by faith and to be willing to dare to leave places of familiarity and comfort and predictability to go into that scary unknown of the whitewater rapids of faith. Lord, we know that we can do that because you're the one holding the oar. You're the one holding our, our, uh, our raft in a place of safety. But God, help us to have the, the spiritual and moral courage, not to trust in the outcome, but to trust in the God of the outcome. Help us to trust that you're leading us to a place 
of faith and dependence on you. And Father, if there's any here today who do not know Christ as their Savior, I pray that day would be the day they choose to make their first step of faith in a series of faith steps. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.